The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are grateful for this morning because we get to hear from you. Your word is timeless and true, just as it was the day it was penned as it is now. And so would you soften our hearts? Would you help me, your spirit, fill me with your grace, compassion for your people? Father, would you help me to lean into the truth this morning as we hear from you? Soften our hearts. Prepare us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one of the things that we do here at Sacred City Church that is distinctive of our church is we preach exegetically. That means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through whole books of the Bible. And we believe that scripture is meant to be read in big chunks because doing, reading scripture in big chunks at a time provides context and clarity as to what the author is speaking to originally. And we believe the same is true of preaching. That when we, when we take bits and pieces of scripture and patch things together, we actually do scripture less justice that way. And so we wanna go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Now, there's a couple of, of benefits to this because, first of all, in doing this, the, the author naturally builds on what they've already said. You have to understand what is said in chapter one to understand what's being said in chapter four. That's just how it works. It's linear in that sense. But, but there's a couple other benefits that as your pastor, it prevents me from picking my favorite doctrines, my favorite passages, and just preaching those and avoiding things that I don't want to talk about, right? Because there's, there's a lot of stuff in Scripture that's very confrontational, very offensive, if you will, that, that it'd be easier just to kind of sidestep, but, but preaching exegetically makes me go into that, and, and that, that makes us a better people because God's whole counsel shapes us that way. And finally, the third reason why we do it is my job, like the Apostle Peter, or Paul's, is to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Right? Not just bits and pieces, but the whole thing. So that's what we do at Sacred City Church. And so we've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and this is perhaps one of the most important books of the Bible for Christians to read today. Because Christians today can relate very well to what, what Peter's original audience was experiencing. See, in this book, Peter, this letter, Peter does not sugarcoat what it means to be a Christian. It's not just potlucks and socials and work projects. It's not just uh, bunkering down, isolating ourselves, nor is it given into the culture, to conforming to the patterns of this world. It's not just making Jesus an auxiliary piece in your life. See, being a Christian means that you are simultaneously intentionally resisting things while intentionally engaging in others. See, this is what it means to live a gospel-shaped life. You, you, you simultaneously 
intentionally resist some things while intentionally doing other things. And so there's this resistance that we experience as Christians in this life, that, that there are things that you won't partake in because of your conscience or because of God's word prohibits you to do so. There's the big sins, sexual sin, drunkenness, right? Um, exploitation, big sins. But there's also the little sins that we refrain, refrain from. The pride, the, the, the arrogance, the malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, lust, injustice, right? We, we resist those things, but we also engage in things that, the, that you are still meant to live your life and you do so engaging with culture in a redemptive way. You participate with the culture that's going on, with the things that are acceptable, that are honorable, that are redeemable. And this begins by engaging with God, by living in community and on mission. This is what it means to be part of a church family, right? You live in community on mission. We are God's chosen and sent people that by his His mercy we have been born again to live differently now this means that as missionaries as the sent people it means that we know our neighbors we know their stories it means we open up our homes and practice hospitality we play in the parks we go to concerts we eat good food we celebrate we enjoy good art all the good things that culture has to offer we partake in we engage. And when you live this gospel-shaped life, right, when you, when you quit doing some things and start doing other things, right, especially that Jesus stuff, praying, reading your Bible, coming to church, that Jesus stuff, it makes you stand out. Right, that's what God intends for his people. He, he intends for us to stand out. Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world, and so in a dark and bland world, Christians are meant to stand out. But the deal is with that, that some people don't like that. They don't like that we don't conform, that we stand out a little too much, that we're a little too serious about all this Jesus stuff. And so in their disgust, they will malign Christians, they'll scoff at us. They might disown you. Now this is why Peter begins his epistle by calling the original audience that he's writing to elect exiles. Right? They're exiles not because they've been physically transported from one part of the world to the other, but they're physically, they're, they're, they're spiritually, socially exiles. That they don't fit in anymore because they are living all in for Jesus. They're being told they don't belong, that their message of good news is offensive. If you remember that from last week, right? In order to get the good news, there's, there's hard news, there's bad news first, right? You're worse than you thought, but simultaneously more love than you could dare to dream. And that's offensive to people. And so family members are cutting them off, people are losing their jobs because of their faith, they're being discredited, they're being marginalized. And if you look at our culture, we are trending toward this right now. Right? Not right now in the Midwest, things are still pretty normal. We live in sort of a Christendom culture. But if you go to the coasts, go to New York, go to, go to Seattle, Christians are despised. 
And what's going on there will eventually make its way toward the center of the country. We will experience that. Maybe, maybe one year, maybe three years, five years, ten years, we will be like that. We will feel like exiles in our culture because we don't fit in. And what you'll see is it's really hard to live a gospel-shaped life with this much resistance, with the culture not being so fond of us. And to live in this, it, it grinds you down, it wears you out. And for many Christians, there will be a temptation to walk away from the faith because it's just too hard. Now, Peter knows that. Peter is very aware of that pressure, of that tension, and he wants to pastor God's people through this word. And so what he's gonna do, not only the original audience, but for us, he is going to point us toward our identity in Christ. He's gonna crush the loud voices that say, you don't belong here, we don't like you, we don't want you, He's gonna crush those loud voices with a thundering voice of God. What God says about you. How God sees you. So what Peter's gonna lay out is precisely here is how we became Christians. He's gonna point us to the magnitude of God's grace and he's also gonna show us why we are Christians. What we have been saved for. As we make our way through this, as we wade through the text, we'll find that our, our passage is incredibly affirming as to what God says about us, and it's also very confronting. It's very convicting here, especially for Americans, perhaps even more so than the original audience, because this text, these two verses that we had read this morning are going to directly push against the four big isms of our culture, racism, Consumerism, nationalism, and individualism, right? These aren't controversial at all, right? <laughs> and Peter, in, in half a verse actually, just boom, rails right into all those. And many of us, when we hear these isms, we get defensive about it. We say, well, I'm not, I'm not racist. Or we say, well, I, I might be patriotic, but I'm not a nationalist. And what we need to see here is the undercurrent of these isms are strong, that we could be participating in them and not even know it. It's a subtle tug that our culture has embedded in us, that the gospel removes from us. And see, what we must see this morning is that all of these isms are incompatible with Christianity, right? If you are living all in for Jesus, there will not be a trace of these things in your life. At least you'll be repenting of those things as they surface. So the only way for these isms to be dealt with is, is to be forgiven, for them to be destroyed, is to press deeper into your identity in Christ. So let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Um, there should be Bibles in your pews if you'd like to follow along. You guys in the back, you don't have any yet. They're on their way, but we'll get you some. <laughs> we'll get them. And we're gonna hear from the Lord. We're gonna hear the, the eternal and flawless word of God as it speaks into our lives together. And so here we go. Let's take a look. Let's take a look here at verse nine. He says, but you... Now, I'll stop you right there. We can get very far. But you, when you see, when you read your Bible, you have to be a detective. 
You have to be. If you want to understand it, if you want to understand what, what's being said, you have to keep an eye out for clue words. Now, one of the big clue words that we've pointed out before is therefore. When you see a therefore, it points back to say, hey, because of this that I've already said, it's going to inform the future of what I say. Now, but is the same way. When you see the word but, he's, he's contrasting something. He's saying there's something on the contrary. So what, what exactly is Peter contrasting? Well, if you look back. Even that half verse, he says, they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. He's saying there are some non-believers who are going to push Jesus away. They're going to say, I don't want anything to do with him. But on the other hand, there are those who embrace him, those, those who come to Jesus, who believe in him, that trust in him, that, that love him. See, in these verses, Peter is talking about those who have faith in Christ, who are born-again Christians, because that's the only type of Christian. There is no other Christian except a born-again Christian. There are so many people that have spent their lives in churches that are not Christians. See, coming to church on a Sunday morning makes you no more a Christian than standing in your garage makes you a car. You have to be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus as he came to him. and said, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? He said, you must be born again. That is what a Christian is. See, Christians are changed for the better by the gospel. Their priorities change. They become radically committed to Jesus, to his church, and to her mission. Now, while everyone else in society might be looking at the church and say, these are fools, they're wasting their time, they're, they're, they're getting all excited about a, a fairy tale. Paul even says people look at Christians as the scum of the earth. But Peter has a better word to speak over God's people, to bring back to mind what God has done, the new identity that God has created for his people. And so if you have loud voices in your life that are saying you're worthless, if you have loud voices in your life saying that you don't belong, you don't fit in, God has a better word for you. Let's take a look here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Mm. When your faith is in Christ, when you have been born again, these things are true about you. So let us first look at the descriptors before we get into the confrontational stuff. Because when you see how God describes you, the way that he looks at you, you'll be able to stomach the controversial stuff. Right? He first says, you are a chosen race. We've already seen this language pop up in Peter's writing. He started out the letter by saying, uh, calling them elect exiles. Elect meaning chosen by God. And here's the deal. You did not fool God when he chose you. You did not have some sort of nice facade veneer that, that made you look nice and, and, and God chose you because you looked nice but, but then you, you get in and it's like, uh, sorry God, I was just joking. I'm not really like that. You did not fool him. God knew exactly what he was doing when he chose you. Now many people think Christianity is about making the right choices. It's about being a good dad, working hard, keeping your nose clean, doing the right thing, being a good neighbor. But that is just moralism. 
That's not Christianity. That's about the decisions you make. Christianity is about the decisions, the choices that God has made. That God has looked at you first and said, I choose you. See, when a Christian gives an honest self-assessment of, of themselves, they should think, why would God ever choose me? Right? As your pastor, if you saw the things in my heart, you would look at me, there's no way God's gonna choose that dude. But that's how every Christian should be like. That's what, that's what David was like in Psalm 8. He said, who is man that you would be mindful of him? Right? If God can look at the heart of man and see what's there, why would God ever choose Christians? There's something wretched about all of us. Character flaws, impure motives, selfish actions. And if you think differently about yourself, if you cannot identify places in your life where that is true, you are not living in community. Because community will expose those things in you. Right? You sit down in a mission community, and you, you like have that certain type of person that you just don't get along with, and guess what? That certain type of person is probably in your mission community, and God put them there to expose your character flaws. Right, to reveal just how much you need the gospel. <clears throat> See, God still chooses people like you and me, people who are seemingly unfit for anything godly. We're so wretched, yet he still chooses us. And when you think about that, that is absolutely stunning. It's like picking teams in PE, if you can remember that. Right, the captains are first looking for the most athletic-looking people, the people who can throw the dodgeball the most accurate and the hardest. See, but God is like the captain who looks at the whole spread of people, and he picks the awkward, clumsy kid in the back of the room trying to pick gum out of his braces. Right? That's the type of people God chooses for his team. He doesn't have high expectations for you either. Right? He, he knows that the gospel is gonna change you and make you more beautiful, but, but he doesn't choose you hoping that you'll somehow be like this, this under, underrated draft pick that will somehow rise to the top ranks. You do not have to live up to some, some standards to keep your spot on God's team. He keeps you on his team. See, God chooses you because he wanted to, because it delighted him to make you part of his squad. See, that's what Peter is saying when he says, you are a people for his own possession. That's, that's treasure box language, right? If you have kids, you probably know what I'm talking about. They, they, they have like a little treasure box that they put little trinkets and stuff in. I had one when I was a kid, a little pine box that I kept all kinds of weird stuff in, like weird cards, uh, like necklaces that I made at vacation Bible school. Uh, I'm trying to think. I had like little pewter figurines that like, why? You know, like just stuff that is not valuable, rocks from vacation, like why, you know? But, but I, I chose those. I picked those out because for some reason they were precious to me. So I wanted to hold on to them. I wanted to treasure them. See, this is what God does. He chooses things that are seemingly invaluable, like not valuable, chooses things that look worthless, broken shards of glass and trinkets, and he chooses them, and he holds on to them dearly. It's, and it doesn't matter what your accomplishments are. 
doesn't matter what you've done in life or what you haven't done. He chooses things that don't make sense. He chooses you. He cherishes you. Now, if you understand this, if you understand the gospel in this way, you know how good this feels, that nothing, none of your acceptance rides on your performance. Right? You have the freedom in this, and God being the one who looks at us and chooses us, the brokenness that we are, we have the freedom to admit just how broken we are. But we have confidence knowing that God won't throw us out because he cherishes us. We're precious to him. Now, let's take a look at the other two descriptors. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Now, this should blow your mind because not only does God choose losers like you and me, he makes us what we aren't. In choosing us, God makes us royalty. God makes us holy. This idea of royalty is a big deal for the original audience that that Peter is writing to because living in this honor culture that they lived in, they're constantly being shamed, which is completely humiliating. But God says, look, when I look at you, I do not see anything shameful. I see honor. I see glory that will be. You know what, it's not just like you look like royalty, but you, you, in Christ, you are royalty. Everything that is Christ, we also inherit. That's how, how Peter opens up this first passage, that you've been born again to a living hope, and with that living hope comes inheritance. It's the keys to the kingdom of God. You are royalty. But even better than earthly royalty, this is the royalty that is true in the heavens. That there is future glory, future honor that awaits us as we make our way through this life, as we sojourn through this earth. But the only way to make you fit for such a position is to make you holy, right? And to be holy is to share in the essence of God. Holy is the key descriptor of what God is like. Apart from God, nothing else is holy. But God says, I'm gonna bring you in and I'm gonna make you like me. You have been set apart. You've been purified. You will be glorified. You will be beautified. See, that's what it means to be holy. To be holy is to be the most beautiful version of yourself. That's what God intended, for beauty to exude out of you. So God has a desire for you to grow into your full potential as a child of God, to be rooted in your identity in Christ and embody this glory, this holiness here on earth. Now, Peter does not say, if you try really hard one day, maybe you'll be holy. He says, you are holy. This is present tense. That if you have been born again, this is currently true of you. Christian, you are holy. There's no earning it. God did the whole thing. He chose you before you were, before the foundations of the earth, to be his own, and he makes you holy royalty. Now, when you believe this, this makes you live differently. It's a whole new paradigm for life because rather to live for acceptance, you are living out of your acceptance. There's a huge difference. Many people have daddy issues 
that haunt them for their whole life, right? They had fathers that weren't great fathers. They weren't affectionate. They did not give them what they needed. And so as, as children of a father that may, may be absent, we sort of are set on this trajectory to strive for acceptance uh, of affirming words from an authority figure, and we never get it, right? We never get it from our dad, and so we go looking other places. We go to our boss. We go to our friends. We go to our pastors, MC leaders, trying to find that affirmation, find that love. You're trying to get what you didn't get from your dad, and, and what happens, it leaves you exhausted. It leaves you tired, and it leaves you feeling insecure, and you operate out of that. That becomes your operating system. But contrast that to a child who has no doubt in their mind that their father loved them from the beginning regardless of anything that they did or did not do. That the father was affectionate toward them. Now what happens, rather than being insecure about themselves, this child will be more confident. They'll live with less fear, less shame. It allows them to take more risks, to love deeper to be truer to themselves, to live a free life. Because what's happening here on a foundational level is they're operating out of what they already have and not trying to get something they need. Some of you have been trying to get something from God by your performance, through your self-righteousness. Listen, God is not impressed with any of that. In fact, to live like this, even in our confession, we talked about this today, to live like this is to reject what God is actually already offering you in Christ. You're saying, you know what, that identity that Jesus earned for me on the cross, I can do better. I can do it better than Jesus. That's fundamentally what you're saying. Some of you need to hear this. In your mess, in the exhaustion of trying to be good enough for God, that God dotes over you. All of your mess included, he is smitten by you. He loves you so dearly before you did anything, before you messed up, before you hit that big, you know, you hit the, hit the uh, promotion, you did whatever you thought would make you acceptable to God. Before any of that happened, God had his affections toward you. You are chosen and precious to God and through the work of Jesus that you have been made holy royalty, you have a new identity. Now, here's the deal. When you're given a new identity, that means there's a new way of living that comes along with it. You have new allegiances, new roles, new lifestyle. Now, since the beginning of creation, God has been showing his people how to live life the best way possible. Now, living in this identity means your life will change. That will inevitably push back on sensitive places in your life, in our culture. See, not only are Christians chosen, but we are a chosen race. Now, this is an Old Testament reference linking Christians back to the descendant of Abraham. Right, this is a promise that God had for Abraham. You'll be a chosen race. Now, race has to do with your lineage. Peter says your biological lineage, right? We talk about race. Most of us are Caucasian, which I, I'm praying that God will change that. Race has to do with your lineage, where you come from. 
Peter says that your bio, bio, biological lineage has been superseded by a spiritual one. See, God is knitting us together into one race that is vastly diverse yet radically unified. And what this does, this pushes back on racism on a fundamental level. Now, all of us are associated with race. White, black, Asian, Latino, if you're an islander, and we all have a certain pride in our heritage, where we come from. But there is a temptation for us to project our racial biases on what Christianity should be like. Right, we, we tend to think that our culture has the right take on Christianity. We project in um, an ethnocentric view of Christianity, right? We make Christianity to conform to what our culture is like. Now, this is most evidently displayed in like portraits of Jesus. This is one of the obvious places where you'll see it. If you walk into a church and you see a picture of Jesus and he's white, that's probably an ethnocentric church. Jesus was not white. He was not American, believe it or not. Yet we project our race on Christianity. And people, if we're projecting a white Jesus, that's gonna bar other people from coming to this. We want to be a diverse group of people here that are radically unified by the gospel of Jesus. See, my, that's my prayer for this church, that we would represent the diversity of our neighborhood, of our city. Why? Two reasons. One, because it's a foreshadowing of what heaven will be like when God gathers all the people from all the ends of the earth. That's what it's gonna look like. It's, I, think, I want our Sunday mornings to be a sweet taste of what heaven looks like in that sense. Two, racism is a huge issue in our culture. Most white people wanna hide from their ignorance to this, but it's, it's out there. And when a church is diverse and unified, this is a beautiful picture of heaven, of forgiveness, of grace, of repentance. And what Karen Job says is that, that this doctrine here, that we are a chosen race, is the foundational cure for all the evils of racism in human society. And to be honest with you, I wish I had more time. And some of you are probably like, is he done yet? And I usually preach for a long time, so you gotta, if you're gonna stick around, get used to this, but, but I'm trying here. I wish I had time to preach four sermons on this, because this is really what I need to, to, to present to you the vastness of what this is, the, the implications of this in your life. But, but here, real quick, the unifying power of the gospel breaks down every wall of hostility, especially of race. When the Apostle Paul says in the gospel there is neither Jew nor Gentile, right, he's speaking of race, that those dividing walls crumble. And so it's not just about looking forward to the future of heaven, what that's gonna be like. It's, it's bringing heaven here now, dealing with real problems of our culture and offering a solution that will be eternal. See, there is no race that is superior. There is not one. See, even as a chosen race, which is what God calls us, we are servants, primarily. First and foremost, we are servants. See, this is what Peter says here when he says that Christians are a royal priesthood. 
that we are people called into the service of God. Now, the Reformation, the, the anniversary of the Reformation, 500 years, is coming up at the end of this month. And one of the key doctrines that the reformers pushed was that the priesthood of all believers, that every single Christian is called and sent by God to minister to one another and to the world. See, there's this ministry misconception that only pastors do the ministry. And I'll tell you right now that you have far greater access to the nooks and crannies of our culture that need salt and light than I do. God has called you and sent you to be ministers in those spaces. Now, what does that look like? This means that as God's people, we are intercessors. We are praying, loving, caring for others and pointing people Godward. This calls us to action and participation, that we are to live self, lives of self-sacrifice and hospitality, to be generous and compassionate that we are to give ourselves up so others might know Jesus through our actions and words. But this also means that we're disciple makers to one another, that we are peer pastors to each other, that we care for the members of the church. We pray for one another regularly. Pray for your MC. As your pastor, I have little note cards with your picture on it, what season of life you're in, your kids, and I flip it over and I have prayer requests that I work through every week. I pray through the whole church that way. Praying for one another. That's what it means to minister to one another, but also to open up our lives, to do life on life with each other, to share our burdens, to shoulder the load of a friend, to minister, to point them back to Jesus when life seems gloomy. Now, to live this way totally confronts our consumeristic tendencies. See, when we come to church, a lot of us come to church and we just want to be served. We wanna, we wanna gather and use services that the church has assembled, but that is not a biblical version of the church. The church are people of self-sacrifice who contribute, who push forward the mission. See, we, have, we live in a, a culture of convenience but the deal is with ministry, nothing is convenient. Just look at Jesus. How convenient do you think it was for him to take 12 bozos around with him everywhere? Ministry is not convenient, right? Living in community on mission is not convenient. But this is what God calls us to. See, the without the gospel, we're all consumers, but the gospel compels us to lay down our lives for others. And here's this, because God has a mission, his mission, we'll see it here, to make himself known, because God has a mission, you now have a mission. You don't just sit and consume, now you participate, you contribute. But this also confronts our individualism because putting me at the center of my life is one of the things that our culture does best. Right, there is this, this mantra that, that everyone has internally that says, I am the most important person in this room. We've morphed in this sort of culture that's self-focused. It's about me. It's about my time, my money, my desires. And anything that requires something of me that's not gonna benefit me is cramping my style. And I'm gonna be honest with you, that's, a, a reason, that's one of the big reasons why many of us struggle with mission because we want to do what I want to do, not what God's wanting to do with us. 
But Peter says you are a people for God's own possession. We said this in, in the Heidelberg conf- the Confession, the profession of faith this morning, that I am not my own. I do not belong to myself anymore. But Jesus has ransomed me from my futile ways, from my former ignorance, from the life of darkness. He's brought me into his marvelous light. And because he has set us in his light, because we are treasured by God, we are willing to give up all control to God because he is the one who knows best. He is the one who can direct us in life's best way. And the last major confrontation that Peter lays out for us is our tendency towards nationalism. As Americans, we are a patriotic people, right? And it's good to have pride in where you come from. America is a land of great opportunity that we are blessed to be in this land. So what I say is not anti-American by any means. But I want you to know that patriotism is not the same thing as zeal for God. Jesus and America are not co-saviors. There is one Savior, there is one Lord. And so when Jesus takes control of your life, he will move you where he wants to move you. Now, I grew up in Iowa all my life. I love Iowa. Iowa's my state. I, I still, I've been living in Illinois for like two or three, I'm coming up on three years, but I still think of myself as an Iowa boy. And when I moved to Illinois, I was not super excited about it, to be honest. But because I love Jesus, because I felt a conviction that he was moving, Sam, I need you to come here. I want, you to, I want you to be part of what I'm doing here in Moline. I said, okay, I'll put down my sub-nationalism of Iowa and I'll come over the river. See, that's what God does. When, when you say you love Jesus, you'll let him do whatever he wants to do in your life. If you say that you love the United States more than Jesus or even equal to Jesus, there will be a line drawn in the sand that says, I am unwilling to do that. Right? What if God calls you to go be a missionary in Cambodia? What if he calls you to go to Russia? Right? If you are, if you have, have that bent of nationalism in your heart, you draw a line, line you're saying, Jesus, you're not the Lord of my life in this sense. See, even if, you, even if you put America up on a pedestal, and like I said, America is a great country. The, the idealized version of the United States is great. But in reality, if you give an honest assessment of our country, there is so much that is flawed with us. There are more babies being aborted than ever. There are more kids growing up without dads. There's an increasing wealth gap we talked about the racial issues already. There's issues with government. And if you look at it, it's all kind of a mess. That's the good news, that God does not call us to, to be primarily residents of the United States, but he calls us to be residents of a holy nation. He calls us to be people of God's kingdom, a place where everything is set right, everything is beautiful, where God's place, it's not just diverse, Right? There's not just people of different skin colors. Like, America's that way. We're diverse. But the kingdom of God is global. 
every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be gathered worshiping Jesus. See, that's one of the reasons why we are part of the Acts 29 Church Plant Network, that we are a network of church planting churches that are focused globally. We believe God's mission is going out, and so we want to be part of what God is doing globally, not just here in the States, not just here in the Midwest. Friends, God is assembling his kingdom from every corner of the earth. And if you're a nationalist, if you have pride in your country that supersedes the delight and joy in Christ, then you won't be compatible with the kingdom of God. See, God has made you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, that's the reason why God has saved you, so that he can save others as you make his mercies public. See, God is attractive. His gospel is attractive. The church is attractive. When the gospel people live gospel lives, people are drawn to that. The way we radically love one another, we're committed to one another, the way that we serve and bless one another. See, when people look at this, they get a snapshot of what God is doing, what he's like, how he tears down major divisions in our world, how he repairs brokenness, how he brings redemption. But the only way that people can actually experience the fullness of that is to be pulled out of darkness and into light, right? Peter is using this born-again language. To be born again, to trust Jesus. Now, there are people who are, some are stuck in darkness, and they know it. They know it, they're okay with it, they'll fight against it. They like it, but there are some people who are trapped in darkness and are just longing to be brought out. They're just waiting. There are people in our city who are eager to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, how he's redeeming all things back to himself. So this is why we live on mission. As we live on mission, as we live lives in communion, we need to check ourselves of those isms, where, where is my heart drifting that needs to be realigned with my identity in Christ? Now, some of us can identify right away, right? I, I do function individualistically. I do have racist tendencies. Now, what's your next step? To repent, to turn from your former ignorance, to turn from your futile ways, to turn towards God and see how he is making his people beautiful. As you repent, you'll find God's mercy and forgiveness. See, that's what verse 10 is all about. This is why it's so beautiful. Look at verse 10. He says, once you were not a people. You were nameless. You were nobodies. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the key distinctive of Christians, that we have and are receiving mercy. See, the mercy of God that was made available to you when you became a Christian is the mercy of God that's available to you to keep you Christian, sustain you in your Christian life. See, the reality is that you need mercy just as much today as you did the day that you came to know Jesus. 
And God has it for you. God has mercy for you to turn toward him. Now, if you're not a Christian and you'd like to be, God has mercy for you as well through his son. That Jesus shouldered your sin. Whatever isms that you are guilty of, Jesus shouldered the sin of that, took it to the cross for you. That he faced death in the grave so that you wouldn't have to. And as you trust in him, you are born again through his mercies that you are given a new identity, you are given a new life. So church, as I close, whether you are going to God for mercy for the first time or for the millionth time, do it with confidence. That Jesus is the well of living water that cannot run dry. Come to him and drink. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have changed us so radically in the gospel that we are a new creation. Would you help us to live in that? Father God, would you lead us toward repentance as we come to your table this morning, remembering that the body was broken for us, that Christ's blood was shed for us to cleanse us, to make us new, to make us right. Father, would would you help us to live in that identity? Would you help us to be a radically diverse and unified people? Help us to push back against the, the pull of culture, the undercurrent of culture, and be people who are conformed to the word of God. We thank you in Jesus' name.